Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to support the communities of plants, people, and places that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. April 26th is the 200th birthday of Frederick Law Olmsted. In celebration and recognition, the National Association for Olmsted Parks is joining with celebration partner locations around the U.S. to host Olmsted 200, events reminding us of the long and valuable legacy of Olmsted, highly relevant in our public green spaces today. To share more about Frederick Law Olmsted and his influence on our green spaces to this day, Cultivating Place is joined by Didi Petri, Executive Director of the National Association for Olmsted Parks, and John Roden, Senior Director of Bird-Friendly Communities with the Audubon Society. Welcome to the program, Didi and John. Well, thanks, Jennifer. I am too. Yes, thanks for having me. So I have introduced you in the very most basic of ways. I'd love each of you to take a second and introduce yourselves. Tell me and our listeners how you are involved with gardens and parks and your specific role uh, in relationship to Frederick Law Olmsted and the Olmsted 200 celebrations. Let's start with you, Dee Dee. I am the president of the National Association for Olmsted Parks. We were founded back in 1980, and we are the only organization in the country dedicated to advancing the life, work, and legacy of Frederick Law Olmsted. We also are delighted to be the managing partner of Olmsted 200, which, as you say, is the bicentennial celebration and exploration of the life and work of Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, April 26, 1822 is the magical day. He turns 200 on that day, and we have been working now for well over 20 months uh, to prepare from coast to coast to really celebrate and explore the legacy of this uh, incredible landscape architect. And what about you, John? So I uh, work for the National Audubon Society, which is a celebration partner for Olmsted 200. Uh, The National Audubon Society was formed actually uh, early in the last century uh, to protect birds in the places they need today and tomorrow. I personally oversee our bird-friendly communities conservation strategy, which seeks to create habitat in our communities, be they large or small, that birds can enjoy and thrive in and consequently people can simultaneously enjoy and thrive in. And we have a network of chapters and centers across the country, many of which are co-located with Frederick Law Olmsted Properties. And that is how we are joining to help celebrate the the legacy of this uh, incredible person and happy to be here. Great, great. Well, already um, so many of the topics that are dear to my heart and, and the hearts of listeners of Cultivating Place have come up, and we, were, we, we will get into all of those. But first, d- just to give a sense of who you are and where you are coming from as you participate in this kind of work in our world, I'd love to get just a little backstory on each of you. Why don't I start with John, and then we'll, we'll head back to Dee Dee. 
So I am a typical Navy brat in the sense that I didn't actually grow up in a single place being a, a kid of a, of a Navy officer. And so we moved all around. And I think that one of the relevant things to your question about that is that the, the through line for all of those places we lived was access to nature. Um, I do think that um, Navy families get to live in great places. I will say that. So Hawaii and Southern California and Italy. And as a kid who was constantly being uprooted and moved to different places, and also, to be honest, you know, a shy kid who, and kind of nerdy kid, um, the ability to get into nature, to, to experience the local flora and fauna was something that was really grounding for me. And I yeah. think led me to the place where I, um, I actually studied biology and went and got a PhD in zoology focused on birds, um, perhaps not surprisingly, since I work for Audubon. And since I've been with Audubon, uh, just that it's really cemented the importance of thinking very holistically about how everything is interrelated, how plants and wildlife are um, so uh, integral to the functioning of not only their own world, but our world as well, and how important it is for us to have places where we can all thrive together, right? So it's the wildlife, it's the plants, it's the people in our communities that we all need to come together and we all can, thrive and 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 live in in harmony together and i think that that's something that is you know really a legacy of of olmstead and also legacy of the of you know uh dd's organization the legacy of audubon society how we can actually think about um creating space and creating space that has that we can um share and that there's equitable access to i think all of those things have been really important informative in how I approach my work. And again, how Audubon does as well, thinking about how do we create um, opportunities for everyone to connect together and, uh, and support ourselves and the wildlife in our communities. Nice. Okay, great. Didi, what about you? Take us, take us back a little bit. Where were you born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that grew you? Well, I grew up in the Midwest, just north of Indianapolis, which was really almost rural in those days. And I was very lucky to live on a ravine where there were an immense array of wonderful birds, a little creek. And so there was quite a bit of wildlife as well as wildflowers. And like so many, I had a mother who was very interested in gardening. And she would actually go in those days and find wildflowers on the roadways and she would bring them home and she would put them into what became her native wildflower garden. And this was something as a child I remember visiting regularly because I would be taken out to the wildflower garden to appreciate it. Now, I'm not <laughs> sure I appreciated it then, but I did appreciate it later because uh, she had fantastic wildflowers, native plants, and I think really uh, subliminally was imbuing in me some interest in native plants, which I continued to develop over time. Uh, one of my favorite writers is Henry Mitchell. He used to write for the Washington Post as one of their gardening, gardening reporters. And in one article, he says, 
all people become a gardener if they're going to be a gardener at age 28. And that was when <laughs> I became a gardener. I decided that I loved it. I wanted to learn more about plants. I wanted to do some design. And so that was really a critical year in my life when I started really to start studying plants, names of plants, design of plants. And over the years, uh, that interest grew and developed. And I was very lucky. Uh, in recent years to become the president of the Garden Club of America, where I was able to work with almost 18,000 gardeners across the country uh, in an organization that worked with the National Audubon Society and uh, provided, I think, not only a national perspective in terms of gardening and gardening principles, but also really motivates at the local level uh, mm -hmm. these various clubs and club members who can make such a difference in their community. And I think one of the joys for me in the course of Olmsted 200 is to have 10 national founding partners, of which one is the Garden Club of America. And they have continued throughout this campaign to show the creative reach that they have when tending with green spaces and open spaces in their communities. That is that is great. And I think leads us right into the heart of our conversation, which is about this celebration and about this really formative, iconic man uh, in our North American history. Now, I'd love to actually have you all give us a little bit more information, and I think I'll start with you, Dee Dee, you know, on exactly who Frederick Law Olmsted was, because I think many people will recognize the name. They might even attach that name to some well-known parks, but I don't think that there are many people who know just that much and not much more, and I think that is part of the great uh, opportunity and excitement around this birthday at this exact moment in our cultural history. Um, because I think it would also be easy as someone looking from the outside of the, the garden world to say, really, we're going to talk about another old white guy? Why is this important? And how is this relevant to me? And why is this man from 1822 relevant now? And yet... He is, and his legacy is. And so that is what I am hoping to get from uh, our conversation today so that we really catalyze people to learn more um, and participate in some of these celebrations in one way or another. So, Didi, who was Frederick Law Olmsted, and why is he more than just an old white guy in gardening? Such good questions. And I love to quote Justin Martin, who was a biographer who wrote Genius of Place about Frederick Law Olmsted. And Justin maintains that Olmsted is probably the most important American historical figure that the average American knows least about. And I, I love that phrase. And I think that's true it, to your point that people may have some vague notion of Frederick Law Olmsted or, may, or they may have no notion at all. And so one of the goals, obviously, of Olmsted 200 is to really bring to the fore uh, this person's life and work and why it matters today. And uh, it's interesting. He was born in 1822. He lived in Hartford. Uh, the Connecticut Valley was a beautiful area. He had a very soft-spoken, shy father who loved scenery and would take him on his horse into the countryside. And Olmsted himself said that 
that was really one of the most formative experiences for him. He lost his mother at age four, and in his autobiography, it's interesting, he has only a vague recollection of sitting under a tree with his mother. Uh, but he loved scenery, and he loved the beauty of the surroundings, and so this gradually uh, influenced his activities. But it's also fair to say that his father um, had a new family, uh, was not all that attentive to Olmsted in his early years, sent him off to be with various uh, preachers. And so Olmsted, uh, I think, personally found a great deal of solace and joy in going out into the nature. He wasn't with his family. He didn't particularly care for these preachers who were teaching him. And so uh, bit by bit, uh, nature really found its way into his soul. And he has one of these careers that again, uh, Justin Martin, I think is wonderful. He says his middle initial should have been serendipity. And it is true, <laughs> if you look at the things that happened to him yeah. over a period of life, uh, it was just a remarkable array of activities. And so tell us a little more about Frederick Law Olmsted. He starts out as a merchant. He takes a year, he goes to China. He comes back and decides to become a scientific farmer, both in Connecticut and on Staten Island. He then has the opportunity to go to England. So he goes and travels for about five months. He gets to see the British countryside. And here again, he's starting to be uh, just blown away by the beauty of the uh, gardens of England and the green spaces and open spaces. And he comes back and he starts to develop that but then he gets waylaid because he writes a book about gardening. The New York Times discovers him. He then is asked to go south where he writes about plantation life in the south. He then is asked to lead the U.S. Sanitary Commission, which is reaching out to support Union troops during the Civil War. If that weren't enough, he leaves the Civil War. He goes west where he is part of uh, seeing Yosemite. He's running a gold mine. He writes a a phenomenal report called the 1865 Yosemite Report on National Parks. And it is not until then, when he turns 43, that he actually decides he's going to turn his entire professional life now back to landscape architecture. And so he comes back and the rest, as we know, is history. These incredible spaces that he's produced across the country, Central Park probably being the one we most know, uh, but hundreds of park commissions, hundreds of commissions for other kinds of landscapes, parkways, uh, schools, cemeteries, um, the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, in so many ways, Olmsted really designed the landscape that we know today. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I want to just sort of underline that whirlwind, fabulous biography you just gave us to to sort of, you know, underline the the Renaissance kind of humanities education this man um, was able to acquire and how all of that education, and he was a, a staunch abolitionist, he was a staunch ecologist and environmentalist, all of that was then brought to bear on how he started to um, design spaces and for whom he designed them and why he designed them in the various places that he he was going to be designing them. Central Park is one of them. I remember being a young adult with my first career job in Seattle uh, around 2000, 
somewhere around there. Um, and, uh, oh no, it was 1995 and I was living in Ballard, Washington. And just down the street from where I lived in this little bungalow house was this beautiful, gracious little pocket park. And I don't know if it was designed directly by him or by the firm, but it was the whole neighborhood talked about how it was influenced by the Olmstead vision of what a public green space should be. And, you know, that really captured my imagination as a young adult myself. So tell us about the, the organization that, that you run, what that is and why that is like, what is the national association for Olmstead parks and, um, what is its mission? And then we'll get into this last 20 months of envisioning this 200 year celebration and where Audubon and the other partners come in. Well, your mention of Seattle really helps uh, answer this question because you're absolutely right. Frederick Law Olmsted Sr., whom we celebrate, was the first, but he was not the last Olmsted. In fact, he started in 1857 when he was selected as superintendent of Central Park. He then was selected in 1858 to design the park and then went on of, until 1895, designing a wide array of landscapes from coast to coast, including Stanford, including Trinity College, including parks. Uh, but he was not alone. He was followed by his sons, John Charles Olmsted, who I suspect was the one who designed the, the park that you were enjoying in the West Coast, and Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. And the two of them ran the Olmsted Brothers firm. And in fact, the firm was in business for almost 100 years. Uh, so 1857, 1979. And because of that, there are about 6,000 projects. <laughs> wow. 6,000 projects that they undertook. Now, not all of them were realized, but it does give you some sense of the absolute breadth of their reach. I mean, every city and town, particularly after Olmsted had done Central Park, there began to be a competition. Well, we want to have one too. Buffalo wants one. Rochester wants one. Louisville wants one. And so this catches on. And so we see uh, these cities literally competing with each other. Don't we wish this would happen today? Competing with each other to have beautiful green spaces to which all people can go. And the sons continue that legacy. They really professionalize the firm. They start the American Society of Landscape Architects and uh, proceed to continue the kind of landscape design that Senior had developed uh, very early on. One funny story that I love is that Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. was not always Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. He actually was christened Henry Perkins Olmsted. <laughs> but Senior became very obsessed with wanting to have succession clear in the firm. And so when, you know, when Junior, as I like to refer to him, turned about four, his father changed his name, made him Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. He was nicknamed Rick, so that he could be the very natural successor and help carry out the work of the firm. And my organization, the National Association for Olmsted Parks, is dedicated to educating about stewarding and advancing the protection and uh, preservation of these remarkable spaces undertaken by the firm. This is Cultivating Place, 
This week, we're in conversation with Didi Petri, Executive Director of the National Association for Olmsted Parks, and John Roden, Senior Director of Bird-Friendly Communities with the Audubon Society, sharing more with us about Olmsted 200, park and garden-based celebrations around the 200th birthday of landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted on April 26th. We'll be right back after a break when we get into exactly what characterizes an Olmsted park and how it works with and for nature as well as humans. Cultivating Place is made possible by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to support California's native plants and places using both head and heart. In October of 2022, the CNPS is hosting their biannual Native Plant Conference, this year focused on a theme of rooting together, restoring connections to plants, places, and people. They are inviting everyone to be part of this conversation and the effort to celebrate, protect, and restore California's plants and everything connected to them. CNPS has a current call out for presentation applications. If how we restore connections for people, places, and plants is dear to your heart and you would like to find out more about presenting at this year's conference, please visit conference.cnps.org. That's conference.cnps.org. The deadline for conference presentation applications is April 30th, so get yours in now. Hey, it's Jennifer. As you listen to this, It is California Native Plant Week in National Native Plant Month, and we are in the week heralding Earth Day 2022. I know that environmentally, the news is generally not good. But as promised, I really wanted to share with you some of the good news from gardeners around the country, growing their own natural places back together through their gardens. Emily Bredel of the Merrim Collaborative wrote in from the shores of Lake Michigan to share more about her native plant love and garden and her work with schools, organizations, and families to co-create transformative educational experiences at the intersection of artistry, ecology, and sustainability, all through native plant gardening. Similarly, Joan Brandwine is the steward of Como Habitat, the name she has given her 0.16th of an acre urban residential lot in St. Paul, Minnesota, to which she has added more than 60 species of Minnesota native plants in the last 10 years. Well done, Joan. Anthony Wayne McPherson wrote in from the Northeast about his interest in the native status of aconitums, also known as monkshood, which, of course, are a favorite native plant of bumblebees. Lydia 
Kornisiewicz wrote from southwestern Pennsylvania, the exurbs of Pittsburgh, as she describes where she lives. She has roughly 2,100 native plants. She says, it's extremely difficult to pick a favorite, but I've always adored our native spring ephemerals, particularly Erythronium americanum, the yellow trout lily. If you ever find yourself in Pennsylvania in mid-April, she writes, a woodland would be a great place to visit. Here in Northern California, from North State Public Radio, Sarah Bohannon and her husband, Kirk, are planting native grasses and many native sages around their urban home, while Matt Fiddler and his wife, Jill, have been overhauling their city lot into a permaculture haven for wildlife and food forestry. His favorite natives in the ground include elderberry and many white yarrows. Happy Native Plant Month, gardeners. May we all be ecological gardeners of contribution as well as gardeners of food, comfort, and great beauty. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our 200th birthday celebration of landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted and his lasting influence on our public green spaces in the U.S. I'm joined by Didi Petri, Executive Director of the National Association for Olmsted Parks, and John Roden, Senior Director of Bird-Friendly Communities with the Audubon Society. They are sharing more about Olmsted 200, park and garden-based celebrations around Olmsted's birthday on April 26th. As we come back, we talk more about exactly what characterizes an Olmsted park and how it works with and for nature, as well as to the benefit of us humans. Right now, we're working with about 130 uh, extant organizations. One of the things actually we're hoping that this celebration will do is to generate interest and knowledge in communities that they may actually have an Olmsted asset that they did not realize. With 6,000 projects, there are a lot of spaces that people do not know uh, have an Olmsted heritage. And so, uh, for instance, I heard from a park in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, uh, it's overgrown, seriously uh, in need of help and assistance, but they discovered that there was an Olmsted tie. And I get calls each and every day saying, I hear maybe the Olmsteads had something to do with our park. And so we're really hoping that this will generate interest in learning about their green space, their open space, whether it's an Olmsted or not. And we're really trying to gin up a a real community interest in finding out about their parks and how they can make them accessible for all. And, you know, you said, wouldn't that be great if we had that kind of competition today? And I think, in fact, like this has landed at a moment where we have just gone through, you know, as a world, but certainly within our country as well, two years in which people all of a sudden re-realized and uh, and recognized the profound importance of green spaces, whether in their own backyards or front stoops or in their local community parks. And I think that our 
public parks and gardens are meeting this moment uh, with the the best of their capacity, and and I think they are finding support out in the the general public uh, as a result of this new recognition of how valuable and necessary they are, and I think that point you made about access cannot be overstated. So, John, let's move to you. How did uh, Audubon become involved? And as one of the partners, uh, you know, what, what is your role and, and, and how do you come into the celebrations? Sure. <clears throat> Thanks for the question. Yeah, so um, Audubon has a very strong interest in, uh, in, green space and how that can contribute to the health of uh, birds in our communities, but also people. We, um, we do have a partnership with Garden Clubs of America, as Dee Dee mentioned um, in, her, um, in her previous role there. Uh, so we work with them to, again, spread the, the word about the importance of how, when thinking about gardening, when thinking about creating green space, that we think holistically about how that contributes to the health of our communities. and. So because Olmsted and Olmsted properties are, you know, so um, commonly and, and joyously found in our communities, it's just a natural connection point to Olmsted, um, to uh, Didi's organization and Olmsted 200. So we signed on as a celebration partner to help raise awareness about this, to create connections. Again, we have a very extensive national network across the country embedded in communities all over and including many that uh, share spaces with um, Olmsted properties. And we uh, have communicated across our network to uh, foster an interest in this and to generate uh, connectivity to the celebration. So we have chapters um, and centers that are helping to sponsor events, to uh, raise awareness about this. Um, Downing Park, which is in Newburgh, Newburgh New York, we um, donated some native plants to be planted there. Awesome. Um, so Great. there's lots of ways that that uh, that we're participating in it. And I, I just wanted to pick up on a couple threads of of what Didi was sharing, you know, and, and I, I defer to her for the details around around Olmstead. Um, but, you know, just my understanding about like, I think that there was some visionary thinking that he um that he had around the democratizing effect of parks, the, um, the positive impacts to, to your points about, you know, how we have dealt with the pandemic on, pub, on um, uh, mental health, on physical health, how important these access to these green spaces are, really visionary stuff that I think that, that um, wasn't sort of the, uh, the way that people thought back then. And so I think that that's been, you know, that, that vision has been really borne out over these past, you know, 150 years. And again, particularly uh, a fine point put on it over these past couple of years, how critical that is for community, how critical it is for individual physical and mental health, how connecting through to our green spaces just provides so much, you know, that there's, I refer back to the, you know, the lungs of the city, you know, that kind of, um, that kind of perspective, how important it is. So Audubon, since we are working across the, the broad landscape for this, that, and we work so deliberately and, um, and within a focused way in communities, to create equitable access and to promote equitable access, there's just such a natural connection point between 
our work and uh, the work of the of Didi's organization and the celebration that we're uh, undergoing right now. So maybe one of you, and I'm not sure which one, can give us even a even a distilled characterization. When we say an Olmsted Park, what kind of things would characterize an Olmstedian design in a public space? Can can you give us a, a just a like bullet point list of what what does that mean? Sure, I will take that on. In fact, it comes nicely from what John was just talking about because you have not only the sort of horticultural design aspects of an Olmsted design, but you also have the principles underneath them. And I think what was unique about Olmsted is he understood that landscape design and landscape architecture was more than just putting together some pretty plants, that he really envisioned the social, cultural, civic, ecological impact of landscape design. And he was operating in the late 19th century. There were pandemics then, uh, tenements where people were packed in on top of each other. Most people did not have access to healthy air and beautiful spaces. And so faced with these various uh, situations in society, he understood that landscape architecture could address them. And so Central Park was a place where all people from all walks of life and every socioeconomic level could come together and be seen together. And that was something that he wanted. He wanted equitable access. He wanted this to be available for everyone. He understood that he could build community in this way. And um, this was part and parcel of his design. And he wanted these effects to work almost subconsciously. So there were these principles behind his design that I think in a way are even more important than the design aspects, but there were equally design aspects to his work. Yeah. I mean, he believed in uh, beautiful scenery. He liked to have clumps of shrubs and open meadows. There was a term called suitability that he used, and I'm borrowing from Charles Beveridge. He refers to the principles of design as the seven S's. And so suitability in Olmsted's mind was basically designing by listening to the land. That's something that gardeners talk about a lot. Louise Wrinkle's a wonderful gardener. She says listening to the land. Olmsted was listening to the land, the genius of the place, and that's how he designed. Sanitation was something that was very important for him. Both the US Capitol and Central Park both have massive drainage systems uh, underplanted. And this was something that came out of his earlier work as head of the US Sanitary Commission. He realized that drainage was important, that uh, doing away with settling water, which was creating diseases, was imperative. And so sanitation became an important part of his design. He believed in the picturesque and the uh, pastoral. And I, one feature that I particularly love is something called separation. When we think about Central Park, one of the most revolutionary concepts was the transverse road. How can you get from the western part of Central Park to the eastern part of Central Park and not disrupt those people who have come into the park to get away from the city? And he and Calvert Vox developed these buried transverse roads, if you will, so that people 
do not have to think about whether they are safe. They can walk, they can be in his day on their horse, they can be in their carriage, they don't have to worry about traffic, about hitting somebody. And that was very much a part of his style as well, because he wanted people to be thinking about nature and to be restored by nature. And then two other principles, subordination, he really was into the big picture. In fact, uh, and, and I know lots of gardeners listen, he, he had some problems with the gardening um, rules of the late 19th century. There was a lot of focus on fussy plants and bedding out. He didn't like that. <laughs> he wanted to have a beautiful, coordinated image and design. And so he was pushing back against that a little bit. And then, as I said, uh, last but not least, and certainly one of the most principal, uh, important principles, he referred to it as service. But this, again, was the subconscious uh, impact that this proximity to nature and the restorative design would have in making people be kind towards one another, be restored, and help unite people at a time in his life, which was seriously divided. And to John's point, I mean, there are some eerie similarities between many of the cultural, yep. racial, and social issues of uh, the 19th century and what we've been dealing with now. And I think Olmsted's prescriptions then have incredible relevance to today as well. Yeah. John, I want to go back to you because I don't think that we often think about our public parks and urban spaces and automatically include this idea of habitat. And yet we are at a moment when we know that the world is increasingly urban. Uh, we are, you know, experiencing incredible biodiversity loss and natural habitat loss and fragmentation. Those two things coming together mean that the green spaces in our urban areas have the opportunity and I and I believe the responsibility to actually be of service in bridging these two truths uh, so that they can help reintegrate corridors and and biodiversity and um, as uh, the director of horticulture at the Natural History Museum in LA County uh, Carol Bornstein I think she just recently retired but she sees these urban spaces as the scientific frontier for biology and ecology as we move forward and, and that's for humans and the wildlife right T tell us a little bit more about how you create design and this idea of suitability and separation so that wildlife and humans can coexist in harmony in these urban spaces. Because, you know, I think that's tricky. There are some, the, some tricky issues there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for, for asking about that because it's, it's, really critical, I think. And, you know, as, as you and Didi were talking of just now, I thought, you know, the way that I kind of think about Olmsted's work is that um, the, the kind of paradigm shift for, from, to uh, landscape design that works with and for nature, right? So there's, there's that kind of connectivity. And I think that, that that's what we like to think about is how can we actually work with and for nature in our communities. And 
And you're absolutely right that I think the urban environment is really critical to, uh, to wildlife conservation and particularly for our focus for bird conservation. There's, you know, birds are facing myriad threats. There was a, a study that was published just before the pandemic that demonstrated that we've lost 3 billion birds in the last 50 years in North America. From a, for a variety of reasons, you know, habitat destruction and modification being primary, but there's a lot of um, contributory causes and climate change is certainly um, a contributor. But uh, what that, you know, as we lose habitat and we get smaller patches, those patches are even more critical to the survival of our species, including migratory birds, which is something that we have a large focus on. And I think that there's, you know, clearly I think Central Park is, is one of the um, largest demonstration sites of that, is that it provides incredible habitat for migratory birds, which is what makes it such a magnet for migratory birds and for birders to see them. Um, and to some of your, to your, to your point, um, the, and I think that again, this this goes back to some of the ways that that Olmsted envisioned these spaces. Is that you know, and I don't think that there were, uh, and I would correct me if I'm wrong, Didi, but I don't think that there was quite the same sort of understanding that we have now about the importance of native species and the ecological connections. But I do think that there was still that through his his working with and for nature that there was it was implicit in that right that those are the sorts of things we're thinking about so it's it's you know kind of those having a diversity of spaces having um, having open spaces and more um, and more dense planting having um, structural differences so you have layers of plantings um, leaving natural uh, uh, opportunities like nest cavities and fallen leaves and seed heads and you know those sorts of things all of that I think are important from both a how you create the space and how you maintain the space so that it is yeah. natural it provides that ecological functioning that it provides year-round support for species all of that I think uh, is is really important and I think that increasingly park management it incorporates those kinds of principles, right? Because we have to think about, you know, the holistically how we are supporting the environment and supporting all the organisms that are taking advantage of it, human and non-human as well. Uh, but, but yeah, just back to your point, I think that really thinking, um, you know, we work in communities across the country and, and both anecdotally and, you know, from emerging research, we do understand how critical these spaces are at creating connectivity, but also as, as oases that species can find places to thrive in. This is Cultivating Place. This week, we're in conversation with Didi Petri, Executive Director of the National Association for Olmsted Parks, and John Roden, Senior Director of Bird-Friendly Communities with the Audubon Society, sharing more with us about Olmsted 200, a series of park and garden-based celebrations around the 200th birthday of landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted. We'll be right back after a break when we get into more about how we as people can individually support the parks and green spaces in our environments, rural, suburban, and urban. Hey, it's Jennifer. 
So in this Native Plant Month finale episode, I wanted to circle back around to native plants and their generous use and inclusion in our gardens, all of our gardens. I'm a big fan of Doug Tallamy and his homegrown National Park's ideal proportions concept, in which our gardens are planted with 60 to 75% ecologically functional native plants, meaning that these plants offer environmental food, shelter, and nesting options for wildlife, allowing for appropriate and very modest water use and no chemical use at all if possible. This formula then allows for between 25 and 40% of your gardened time, space, and budget to go towards beloved fruits and vegetables, to culturally or personally significant ornamentals of great seasonal beauty or structure. I think of this like dessert, right? It's a powerful end to your best healthy meals. Not unhealthy itself, but significantly smaller than the main meal and fully enjoyed in just this portion. I also like the approach of many of the Western gardeners in my book with Caitlin Atkinson under Western Skies. Many of these gardeners had relocated to the West and still gardened with some of their favorite plants from previous gardens and lives, but, and here's the key, they also took the time to find good gardening resources in their new locations to find really good, beautiful native plant alternatives to their old standbys from different climates. I recall Virginia Cave from Phoenix, Arizona, saying that when she began gardening in Phoenix, it was a steep learning curve from her garden experience in New York and on the sea islands of Georgia. So when she got to Phoenix, she made time to take great classes at the Desert Botanic Garden. And over time, she learned that while she could no longer grow birch trees, she could grow phenomenal native Palo Blanco trees, which had the same lovely white-barked effect in the garden. And while she could no longer reasonably grow hydrangeas without an irresponsible use of both water and fertilizer, she could now grow gorgeous kufias. If you're looking for more information on great native plants, for good ecological, edible, or ornamental choices to replace your water and input greedy non-natives, check out recommended lists of native plants from groups such as the California Native Plant Society, the Xerces Society based in Portland, Oregon, the Denver Botanic Garden, the Desert Botanic Garden in Phoenix, from the several Ohio Native Plant Societies or the Midwest Native Plant Society, which hosts an annual conference. Also from the Homegrown National Parks website or from the Native Plant Trust based in Massachusetts, the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Texas, or the Florida Native Plant Society. I have links to all of these in this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. If you still can't find a source for good native plant lists for where you garden, send me a note 
cultivatingplace at gmail.com, and I will be happy to try and steer you in the right direction. We're back now to our conversation about the 200th birthday of landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted and his lasting influence on our public green spaces. I'm speaking with Didi Petri, Executive Director of the National Association for Olmsted Parks, and John Roden, Senior Director of Bird-Friendly Communities with the Audubon Society. As we come back, Didi and John share more with us about how we can support our green spaces and how we can make them friendly for both habitat and humans. Well, that's one of the reasons the National Association for Olmsted Parks uh, really got started back in 1980. You referenced Central Park. It was not always the beautiful, highly resourced park that it is today. It was part of an economic downturn. I mean, the city was bankrupt and the park was a crime-ridden place, which people avoided. And so it's good to remember that because these parks cannot thrive and survive without constant support, stewardship, and maintenance. And uh, in the case of Central Park, we saw the birth of the Central Park Conservancy, a very effective public-private partnership, which has allowed them to bring in resources. But I also want to say that Central Park is almost an aberration. When we deal with other parks around the country, other landscapes designed by Olmsted and the Olmsted firm, many of them are run entirely by volunteers, really uh, rely entirely on those who love these spaces to take care of them. And while the pandemic has proven to us that these open spaces, these green spaces are incredibly important to our mental, mental and physical well-being for bringing people together, uh, what's almost happened is they've become overloved. I mean, in so many cities, these places were the only place people could go. Um, I know in Boston, I mean, more trash, uh, more trampling. Uh, so with it, uh, with popularity and with the realization that these were important places came also uh, additional challenges and not necessarily the resources to address them. And I think that's really one of the ongoing um, efforts by the NAOP and I, if I dare say the National Ottoman Society to sort of draw attention to the fact that um, these places are show with us because of dedicated stewardship and support and that without that dedicated stewardship and support we cannot count on them and um, one thing i i love to say uh in the bicentennial year is that we are seeing some cities which are even growing their public spaces now we hope to sustain and maintain these existing spaces but uh, right now in Boston, in Baltimore, they have announced a new hillside park. Uh, it is going to be designed on the along the lines of Olmsteadian principles that we talked about. It will be uh, the only new public park that they've seen in Baltimore City in decades. And in Louisville, they've just added 25 extra acres to the Olmsted Parks. Again, this is the first expansion in over 130 years. So oh, that's one of the goals, again, of this celebration, to engender community and public awareness of the value and importance of these spaces, that they are public infrastructure, and that they should be dealt with seriously in terms of 
uh, municipal and other resources, and that we just must remember that without constant uh, attention, these spaces cannot be taken for granted. Right, right. Anything you would add to that, John? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I absolutely endorse everything Didi said. I, I think from the Audubon perspective, definitely this is some, these, these parks and green spaces in our communities are a priority and they are um, often deprioritized or the priorities of a community may not place them at the top of the list, which is unfortunate. It's certainly something that we advocate that they should be prioritized in our communities. But I think that what much of our network does is step into that stewardship role mm -hmm. in, our, in our parks. And so, because we recognize the importance, not only for our own, um, our own access, but also the importance to wildlife. And, you know, many of our, of our chapter network and centers go birding, you know, really use them to uh, get community members involved to understand the importance and concomitantly, they need to do the, the proper sort of stewardship. So how are, you know, can we contribute plants to, to as, as appropriate? Can we clean up? Can we contribute to those sorts of efforts? And I think that it does build this not only sense of community, but a reality of community where we are taking care of these. Of course, I, they are community assets, their infrastructure, as Didi mentioned, and we should, from, from every um, level of society, support that. But um, we are the ones that are quite often boots on the ground that are providing that stewardship. And that is such a great model. And I think uh, you're, to your point, Didi, uh, where, you know, the Garden Conservancy, the, the Central Park Conservancy has provided a model that has been replicated in, in other cities and parks across the country, wherein that public-private uh, investment helps to protect and insulate some of these, you know, cultural property spaces from the vagaries of political or economic changes, which I think is so important. So now, as we come towards the end, I really want the two of you to highlight some of the celebrations people should be looking for uh, on April 26, uh, how they get involved, maybe some of the celebrations that might be ongoing across the year, uh, and, and maybe try and call out some of the ones that you know are going to be taking place around the country, in the West, in the South, in the Midwest, as well as in um, the heart of Olmstead country there in the Northeast. It's so exciting. We really are seeing activities from coast to coast. Yeah. And I do hope that people will go to the Olmstead200.org website and go to the national calendar. Uh, April 26 is the birthday, but activities are already building. Uh, Downing Park in Newburgh, New York, which John has spoken of earlier, is going to have a special celebration. This was the last partnership of Vox and Olmstead, and it was done in honor of Andrew Jackson Downing. It is an exquisite park that has seen better days, and there are groups there really working together to restore and re reinvigorate this park in the context of the bicentennial. Awesome. I want to do a shout out to the Municipal Archives in New York City. They are going to be doing a special pop-up exhibit of the Greensward Plan. This is that very famous plan that Olmsted and Vox submitted, and they were able to win the Central Park Design Competition. Right. It will be possible for 
for the public to sign up for an opportunity to see this very rarely seen um, design, and that will be on the 23rd and 22nd of April. Uh, there will be special tours in uh, Central Park on the birthday, uh, special tours in Morningside Park. We'll have a carillon concert at Riverside Church, which I recommend. This That's will be great. one of many carillon concerts around the country. Oh, that'll um, be wonderful. Yeah, it would be great. There's just so many and I, uh, California, Chicago, Louisville, Atlanta, Boston, New York, uh, in every city, there are activities. That's great. Uh, any celebrations that you want to shout out? John, or other participations? I know you mentioned the one where you've donated native plants to help plant, you know, some new habitat or restore. Yeah, um, well, so uh, echoing Didi, I, I would go to the Olmstead 200 website because it is, there's an incredible variety and diversity of opportunities to, um, to participate. I think that one city um, that I didn't hear her mention was Portland, Oregon, which is a, um, it's a partner. We have a very big Audubon chapter there. And I know there's a number of activities that they're pursuing, including um, I think at a brewery, not surprising considering it's Portland. <laughs> uh, but so there's, you know, so many ways to celebrate, um, to celebrate the birthday. And so I would, I would go look for events there. Yeah. And I should certainly add Chicago and Milwaukee, lots of exciting activities in the Midwest. We want to give equal time to all of the regions, right. uh, the Milwaukee, Lake Park, Riverside Park, uh, Washington Park. A lot of people don't realize there's so much Olmstead in the state of Wisconsin. So I want to sh give a shout out for that as well. You can literally spend your entire summer, if you want, going from coast to coast, visiting Olmstead landscapes. <laughs> Traveling. I like it. We need a little passport book where you get a stamp, you know, to, so that then you collect them all. Um, you know, as we come to an end, I really hope people will get involved. We'll do some, some research and some participation and certainly just go out and support your own public parks, Olmstead or not, uh, in, in this spring and in these celebrations. But are there anecdotes that either of you would like to share as to how this kind of, um, protection and, and support and preservation has already started to land or is landing at this time, where, wherein you see the positive benefits really tangibly. Any stories either of you would like to share? As I indicated, we're delighted to see uh, places like Baltimore uh, adding new parkland. We're delighted to hear in um, the New Jersey area new nonprofits are being founded right now to be friends groups uh, to landscapes that need more attention. So we're seeing um, some real community interest and support uh, thanks to the work of Olmstead 200. And, and we agree that the Olmstead parks and landscapes are wonderful, but there's a very little separation between an Olmstead park and another park because he really helped devise that whole idea of the public yeah. park. And so we hope that this celebration uh, generates interest in every community in its green spaces, in its uh, parks and landscapes, and that uh, whether it's a cleanup day or whether it's pulling out weeds or whether it's going out and birding or whether it's even just doing a little history lesson in terms of how the park came about and uh, what it does to help be ecologically today. All of these are the kinds of opportunities that we hope Olmstead 200 will generate. Great. 
Yeah, and I don't, I, I couldn't have said it any better. Obviously, Didi is um, is so eloquent about this. Um, I, I guess the one thing, and which isn't sort of a, a, so all of the above, but I just, I hark back to, I think earlier um, in the 2000s when there were, there was a new species discovered in Central Park, right? There's, you know, there's just, which again is, it, who knows what may happen, you know, with this summer, but it just really, I, I think again, illustrates the really critical value that these parks play in our communities. They're harboring things we don't even know. They're just these, these incredible resources that we should treasure and value and protect and celebrate. And I think that this really gives us an opportunity to do that. Thank you both very much for being guests on my program today. It is uh, exciting to see all of this work coming together and I am really looking forward uh, to participating in one or more of them across uh, across the summer. So thank you very much for your work, Didi and John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure for me. Really enjoyed it. Didi Petri is the executive director of the National Association for Olmsted Parks. John Roden is the senior director of bird-friendly communities with the Audubon Society. The Audubon Society is one of the celebration partners joining the National Association for Olmsted Parks in putting on Olmsted 200, park and garden-based celebrations on and around April 26th, Frederick Law Olmsted's actual 200th birthday, and events throughout the year following. You can find all links to the celebrations across the country on the 26th and throughout the summer in this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Join us again next week when we get ready for May Day and Mother's Day in colorful, joyful conversation with gardener, cook, and artist Lorene Edwards-Forkner. Her new book, Color In and Out of the Garden, is a collection of daily color studies of botanical and botanically adjacent treasures seasoned with the science of biology, light, color, and of sight, encouraging us to practice being present, paying attention, and really seeing, as well as taking good care in and of the natural world. It's also a much-needed reminder to live each of our own days in full color, in and out of the garden. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. Thank you most recently to Mary, Sarah, and Terry. And we're made possible by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.